This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. So, what is on the examination table for this episode? I'll be going back to Franchise Land and making a stop in the Midwest, Springwood, Ohio to be exact, to chat about Nightmare on Elm Street. Specifically, I'm going to be looking at three different films in the franchise featuring characters with disabilities, Dream Warriors, Dream Master, and Freddy's Dead. So, Wash down a couple spoonfuls of instant coffee with Red Bull, or Joke Cola if you're retro and nasty, and let's kick this off with Dream Warriors and the character of Will. razors on his right hand. Man of my dreams. He's real, isn't he? He's real. Go of him, you bastard. our Wikipedia plot synopsis. In 1987, a year after the events of the previous film, teenager Kristen Parker dreams she is being chased by Freddy Krueger. When Kristen wakes up, she goes to the bathroom and is again attacked by Freddy, who causes her to slice her wrist with a straight razor. Believing Kristen to be suicidal, her mother attempts uh, admits her to Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital 
where she is placed under the care of Dr. Neil Gordon. At the hospital, Kristen fights against the orderlies who try to sedate her because she's afraid of falling asleep. The new intern therapist, our returning Nancy Thompson, calms her down and earns her trust by reciting part of Freddie's nursery rhyme. Nancy is then introduced to the rest of Dr. Gordon's patients. Philip, a habitual sleepwalker. Kincaid, a tough kid from the streets who is prone to violence. Jennifer, a hopeful television actress prone to cigarette burns. Will, who uses a wheelchair uh, due to a prior suicide attempt. Taryn, a recovering drug addict. And Joey, who is too traumatized to speak and is our youngest patient. One night, Kristen is attacked in her dreams by Freddy, but she unwittingly pulls Nancy into her dream. This allows both of them to escape. Kristen reveals that she has had the ability to pull people into her dream since she was a little girl. Over the next two nights, Freddy throws Philip off of a roof and kills Jennifer by smashing her head into a television. In their next group session, Nancy reveals to the remaining patients that they are the last of the Elm Street kids, the surviving children of the people who banded together and burned Kruger to death many years ago. Both Nancy and Neil encourage them to try group hypnosis so that they can experience a shared dream and discover their dream powers. In the dream, Joey wanders off and is captured by Freddy, leaving him comatose in the real world. Nancy and Neil are relieved of their duty. Neil is told by a nun, Sister Mel Mary Helena, that Freddy is the son of a young woman on the hospital staff who was accidentally locked in a room with hundreds of mental patients who raped her continually, and that the only way to stop Freddy is to lay his bones to rest. He and Nancy ask Nancy's father, Officer Donald Thompson, where the bones are hidden, but he is uncooperative. Nancy rushes back to the hospital when she learns that Kristen has been sedated. Neil stays behind to convince Donald to help them. Nancy and the others again engage in group hypnosis to reunite with Kristen, but all are separated by Freddy. Karen and Will are killed by Freddy while Kristen, Nancy, and Kincaid find one another. The trio rescue Joey but are unable to defeat Freddy because he has become too powerful. Freddy senses that his remains have been found. He takes possession of his own skeleton and kills Donald before incapacitating Neil. Freddy returns to attack the others, but Joey uses his dream power voice to send him away. Donald tells Nancy that he is crossing over, but he is revealed to be Freddy in disguise. He stabs Nancy and prepares to kill Kristen when Nancy rises up and stabs him with his own glove. Neil awakens and pushes Freddy's bones in a hole and douses them with holy water before dropping in the prayer cross, seemingly destroying Freddy. Nancy succumbs to her wounds while Kristen holds on to her, promising to dream her into a beautiful dream, as Kincaid and Joey sadly look on. At Nancy's funeral, Neil sees Sister Mary Helena again and follows her. He loses sight of her but finds a tombstone that reveals her to be Amanda Kruger, Freddy's mother. That night, Neil goes to sleep with Kristen's miniature version of Nancy's Elm Street house on his nightstand. He does not notice its lights turn on. <sighs> so let's focus in on our character of Will, 
He is the D&D loving wheelchair using patient at Weston Hills. He shares a room with Joey and they trade off nights of keeping guard so that the other can sleep. We're not sure exactly how long Will has been at Weston Hills, but know that he arrived following an encounter with Freddy, labeled a suicide attempt that also led him to becoming a paraplegic. One thing that Dream Warriors does that the others don't is each of the kids are given a special dream power. And these powers are revealed in the group hypnosis scene after um, Philip and Jennifer have died. Now, Will's powers are that he can walk and he has some sorcery-inspired magical abilities. The fact that Will can walk isn't an uncommon thing. I wanted to dive into this phenomena a little bit more, so I did some research and came across a 2011 study where 30 people, and this group was comprised of 15 individuals that were paraplegic and 15 that were non, so that would be the control group of this study, all submitted dream journals for a period of six weeks, and the researchers kind of noted what their dreams consisted of and if individuals that were uh, paraplegic had dreams where they could walk, run, and do that kind of thing. So they discovered that all but one of the subjects that were paraplegic reported voluntary leg movements during dreams. And this was not just walking, but running, dancing, standing up, bicycling, and even practicing sports like basketball and skiing and things like that. But the kind of general idea uh, that they came out with was that individuals with paraplegia experience walking dreams at pretty much the same rate at uh, as the control group. And their theory on this all comes down to this idea of mirror neurons and Mere neurons are what are activated when observing others performing an action. So we see this in dreams in a lot of different ways. You know, it's like when you dream of a location that you haven't been to because, you know, maybe you've read a book that has a pretty detailed description allowing your mind to create a picture or you've seen that location in a movie, um, something like that. You know, our mind can kind of create that image. Um, and allow us to be in that place, even if we haven't been there. And so it's the same kind of concept uh, here. But what I thought was interesting, particularly in relation to our character Will here, is that this is someone that is new to disability. Again, we don't know how long they've been in Weston Hills. We don't know how long Will, uh, time has passed since Will has had his accident. But this is someone that probably still does have a bit of that memory of being able to walk. So it would make sense that there would be not just kind of the mere neuron uh, phenomenon there, but also probably that uh, additional uh, memory sense. So um, I also thought that this was an interesting concept to dive into because I think it 
boils down to the concept of representation, uh, kind of pure and simple in a way. And this just kind of circles back to this idea of, you know, what we see is what we normalize. So an individual with a wheelchair is surrounded by individuals that are able to walk. And that's what they see. That's what is considered normal to them. So when they're asleep, when they're dreaming, when your mind is kind of putting together and reconstructing all of these images and inputs from your subconscious, that's what it's kind of coming out with. And in a way, that's why representation is important. Because what happens when it's not just individuals that are able to walk, that are kind of the dominant, uh, I, I guess, viewpoint that we see? You know, what if instead of all of our sitcoms having a cast of individuals that look a certain way, act a certain way, um, we have that diversity? So I, I think it's an idea that kind of comes full circle with that. And it was just something that was really interesting to think about with Will. Um, because I think this also ties into his attitude about walking. You know, it's not just, oh, I can walk. He's like, I can walk and my legs are very strong. And it's just kind of this... Uh, I don't know. Uh, he just seems really kind of entranced with this idea, the sensation that he's able to do something that he hadn't been able to do previously. So it's something that stood out to me, and I was really fascinated by that study. So that's a little bit about what we know uh, about Will in the film, but we have to close up the conversation with Will by talking about his demise. One of the things that stands out to me about Will's death is how disability plays into it because you have a character who can now walk in his dreams and we've talked about some of the concept uh, and ideas behind that and while that's a pretty normal thing but we then get into Will's final dream and the fact that disability plays a pretty poignant role in how he's uh, taken out. So Will comes across Freddy in his nightmare, and there is a wheelchair there. And the wheelchair looks less like a wheelchair, more like a medieval torture device, but it's still a wheelchair. Freddy kind of taunts Will, tells him to have a seat. Will says, no, I'm good. And uh, Freddy summons the chair and it comes and kind of cuts up Will's leg, knocking him down. So right there, you have this representation of Will's in real life disability being kind of his downfall in his nightmare. He tries to use magic against Freddy. It's not effective. Freddy stabs him with his glove and Will dies. 
it's an interesting thing to again go back to that wheelchair symbolism of this device this uh, piece of mobility and independence for many now being viewed as you know this tool of destruction and it's a pretty uh powerful visual i think and you know, again, we then move beyond Will just kind of uh, struggling with identity as a person with a disability to fearing his disability. Now, I've talked a little bit about how this can play out in other ways as well. You know, it's a scene of maybe someone that is a wheelchair user being knocked out of their wheelchair and having to crawl or, um, you know, find a way to get themselves from point A to point B, and you see the wheelchair become the kind of hindrance in a lot of ways. And you can kind of see that connect here with Will's death in, in some ways. It's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty powerful thing. And again, really the, just transitions us out of, uh, you know, Will as a character with a disability to kind of how he really relates to it um, in terms of having that kind of internalized fear. But that's kind of where I want to wrap up with Will. And now I want to get into Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, and talk about Sheila. Do you know what terror is? Hello. Do you live here? Nobody lives here. Real terror. How long has it been since you've been on Elm Street? Welcome to a brand new nightmare. He is the first in fear. I don't you help me! I'm Someone help me, Second to none. Don't let them put you to sleep. He has no mercy. And no evil. Now no one sleeps. Get ready. This August, your wildest dreams will come true. How sweet, fresh meat. A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. The Dream Master. A year after the events of the previous film, Kristen, Kincaid, and Joey have been released from Weston Hills and are back to their lives as normal teenagers with their families. However, Kristen believes Freddy Krueger will come back, and when she dreams that she is in Freddy's old boiler room, she summons Joey and Kincaid into the dream. Kincaid and Joey are upset that she has reverted to her old ways back when they were at Weston Hills. To keep her calm, they take her to the boiler and show her that it is ice cold. Kristen has also summoned Kincaid's dog, Jason, into the dream. The dog jumps out of the boiler, bites Kristen, and they all awaken in their rooms. 
The next day, Kristen meets up with her boyfriend, martial arts enthusiast Rick Johnson, and their friends, Rick Shy and quiet sister Alice, Sheila, an asthmatic genius, and Debbie, a tough girl who doesn't like bugs. Kincaid and Joey confront Kristen at school about the dream. They tell her to let it go, that their days of fighting in the dreams are over, and if she keeps going at it, she might accidentally bring Kruger back. That night, Kristen stays awake to keep herself from dreaming, but Kincaid falls asleep. He awakens in a junkyard, where Freddy has been accidentally resurrected. Kincaid puts up a good fight against Freddy, but Freddy overpowers him. Kincaid screams for Kristen, but Freddy reaches, uh, reaches him and kills him. Joey watches MTV and listens to music in his room. He begins to fall asleep and discovers a model from one of his posters swimming in his waterbed. Freddy jumps out of the waterbed and attempts to drown Joey. Joey screams for Kristen to help him, but Freddy stabs and kills him. At school the next day, Kristen panics when she notices that Joey and Kincaid are missing and accidentally knocks herself out as Rick attempts to calm her. Freddy tries to attack Kristen as the school nurse wakes her up. Kristen feels guilty about staying awake when she learns that Kincaid and Joey were found dead. She later tells Rick, Alice, and Alice's crush, Dan Jordan, about Freddy. She vows to avenge Kincaid and Joey. Kristen realizes that her mother has put sleeping pills in her dinner, but falls asleep as she tries to run out of the, din uh, out of the dining room. Kristen starts to dream. Freddy overcomes her, uh, attempts to repel him, and forces her back to his home. Since Kristen is the last of the Elm Street children still alive, Freddy goads uh, Kristen into summoning one of her friends into the dream so that his phone can begin anew. She calls Alice into her dream, and Freddy throws Kristen into the boiler, but before she dies, Kristen gives Alice her dream power. Alice wakes up with a sense that something is wrong and takes uh, Rick to Kristen's house. When they get there, they see Kristen's bedroom is on fire with her in it. Later, Alice uh, falls asleep during class and inadvertently brings Sheila into her dream. Freddy kills, kills Sheila and makes it look like an asthma attack. Rick starts to believe Alice, but the following day he has a dream where an invisible Freddy attacks him in a martial arts dojo. Rick fights him and manages to knock his glove off. However, the glove levitates and stabs him, killing him. With each death, Alice changes. She gains the abilities and personalities of her dead friends. She makes plans with Debbie and Dan to fight and kill Freddy together, but when her father keeps her in, Alice falls asleep. Through Alice, Freddy stalks Debbie, transforms her into a cockroach, and crushes her in a roach motel. Using Debbie's temper, Alice tries to ram Freddy but collides with a tree in reality, injuring Dan. As Dan is rushed into surgery, Alice returns home and readies herself to join him and face Freddy. In a dream, Alice rescues Dan, and the two find themselves in an old church. Dan gets injured in the dream, which prompts his surgeons to wake him up. Alice now has to face Freddy alone. Freddy has the upper hand due to his experience, but she uses her friend's dream powers against him. When he is about to win, Alice remembers a nursery rhyme called The Dream Master. 
she recites it and forces Freddy to face his own reflection, which causes the souls within him to revolt. The strain tears Freddy apart. Alice's friend's souls are released and leave Freddy as a hollow husk. Months later, Dan and Alice are on a date when Dan tosses a coin into a fountain. For a moment, Alice sees Freddy's reflection in the water, but she ignores it. Dan asks her what she wished for, but Alice does not tell him as they walk away from the fountain. So, that is our plot synopsis, of course, uh, just to give us a little bit of context of story. But I want to focus in on the character of Sheila as the plot synopsis so accurately and succinctly describe her describes her as our asthmatic genius. Now, Sheila is not in the film for uh, a ton. She is kind of the first of the uh, new set of friends that is uh, kind of killed off. But she is a character with a disability. The disability plays in to not only, I think, uh, her character and how she's portrayed and some interesting things with that, but it also plays into her death. So let's get into this. When we meet Sheila, she is arriving at school and is meeting up with her group of friends, Debbie, Alice, Rick, and Dan, who I think has joined the group at that point. Let's come over to chat with them. She arrives on a moped and we see that smoke is trailing and it's obviously got a faulty exhaust system, which is kind of uh, not, uh, I guess, subtle way of commenting on the asthma. Of course, she hops off the moped and takes a hit off her inhaler. Two uh, guys kind of passing by make a comment to her about how she's sucking on the wrong end of the nozzle. Now, Debbie and Sheila seem to be the tight uh, pair within this group, and Debbie comes to Sheila's defense, and they kind of have some back and forth about homework, you know, how Sheila's kind of bailing her out of uh, not having her homework done, and we also learn that Sheila is kind of a tinkerer, someone who likes to mess around with some gadgets and has created a bug zapper. Now, all of this kind of establishes the fact that Sheila is a pretty big nerd, and we've seen her take a hit off her inhaler, so we've established that she has asthma, and particularly in this time of uh, film, you see a lot of shorthand with kind of these nerd characters and, you know, the attributing that with asthma or something like that because it, you know, it's there to kind of pinpoint this element of frailty, of otherness, of being a wimp. And so I think that this kind of lays some foundation for that. It's also kind of weird, going back to that 
kind of exchange with the two guys that are passing by, and they make this pretty sexual comment uh, to Sheila, which comes out of nowhere. You know, we're not given any scenes with Sheila where we realize that she's being bullied because of, you know, the fact that she's asthmatic, although I guess this is kind of introducing that idea. But, um, you know, her scenes are so brief and minimal in this film that we're not really given a lot um, kind of context with that. So, um, you know, the next scene that we really have with her is her death. And honestly, this is probably one of my favorite death scenes in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. There's just something really powerful and visceral about it for me, and and I want to talk about it. So we've established via the plot synopsis that unlike the original Nightmare on Elm Street and Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which we discussed previously, we do not have kind of a group of kids that are sharing a similar dream. Um, They're not all dreaming of Freddy, and they're kind of coming together um, to figure out what to do. Kristen, Joey, and Kincaid were the last of the Elm Street kids, and so the conduit to Freddy is now simply Alice. So Debbie and Rick and Dan and Sheila, none of them have any concept of who Freddy is. So Alice falls asleep in class, a class that she has with Sheila. And Sheila um, suddenly gets brought into the dream. We see that she has um, some homework on her desk, uh, I believe a test, and all of a sudden we see some blood red writing on it, and she uh, gets kind of like a hand comes out of the desk that looks kind of like um, a robot arm of some kind. It's a very... It kind of looks like almost like a prosthetic of some kind. It's really interesting and it goes right over her mouth because we're very much connecting her death with her disability. So um, it goes over her mouth. She's able to kind of uh, get away from that. And suddenly I think Alice kind of comes into the dream as well and sees what's going on and is watching. Freddy uh, enters the frame as the teacher and then goes over to Sheila, asks if she wants to suck face, and basically just sucks all the oxygen out of her. And she is left kind of like this completely husked out, hollowed, um, like hunk of flesh um it's pretty gross um but really what sticks with me outside of that um is in the moments right after we see that um we're kind of brought back 
to reality. And we see that Sheila's having essentially an asthma attack. And Alice is there. She kind of zaps into reality. She goes to get the inhaler and doesn't get to her in time. And Sheila dies. And the scene has always really stuck with me because um, it's a fear. It's the fear of our own mortality. And when you have a disability or a chronic illness, a chronic condition, it's amplified. Um, you know, we have health issues and things go wrong. We get sick. There are certain things day to day that are potential risk for us that may not be for others. Um, and so uh, that just really, I think, stands out in Sheila's kind of death. The other thing that also sticks out to me and just the fact that this is a character with asthma. Um, asthma, things like allergies, when we see these in film, these are kind of played off as nothing. Nothing conditions. There's no risk. They're not really fatal. There's no uh, harm, real harm. They're kind of made up uh, diseases. I think of, um, you know, it, where you have the character of Eddie, who is presented as being asthmatic and has an inhaler that he uses, but we come to find out it's a gazebo or a placebo. He calls it a gazebo, which I think is very cute. Um, but it's fake because he doesn't actually have the condition. There are a lot of other films that present uh, asthma as you know, uh, well, if you just calm down, it's something that's only brought on by stress. And these are not factual. Um, asthma is a real condition that can have some really uh, kind of serious issues associated with it. And so in one respect, which I kind of mentioned earlier, where you're kind of connecting this as a marker of a character that is a wimp, kind of highlighting that connection to the nerd trope. Um, you know, the fact that she dies in such a really sad way, uh, I think really underlines kind of like, yeah, there, this is a serious condition. And of course, um, uh, to to kind of put a pin in that, you know, you have Deb as Sheila's being taken out of the classroom, you know, saying, well, the, the, it couldn't have been an asthma attack. A 17-year-old doesn't die from asthma. You know, so again, it's this common perception of this not being a serious illness. Um, and of course, I have to comment on the fact that her death is also kind of underlined with this kind of sexual um, element to it. So, uh, you know, we introduce her. When, when we're introduced to her, we have these guys that are kind of harassing her. And then you have Freddy that, make, you know, kills her by kissing her, essentially. These moments with Sheila underline 
a very important point that individuals with disabilities are often considered easy prey when it comes to sexual harassment, assault, rape, and, you know, her death, I think, demonstrates that perfectly and that Freddie asks her, do you want to suck face? She says no. He kills her. And so it's just a really impactful uh, death for me. Um, and, you know, Sheila is a character that I really think is so underserved. I think they really had some interesting ideas with her, and we didn't really get to see them come to fruition. Um, I think that's one of the things that, particularly in this entry, you don't get a lot of connection with this new group. Uh, of course, I think Alice being the exception here. Um, you don't really get a lot of connection and background and uh, time to really get to know these characters in a meaningful way. But Sheila has always stood out to me as being a pretty interesting and kind of cool character. And her death just always kind of devastated me. So that is Sheila. And now we're going to fast forward to Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and Carlos. As a boy, he was always different. Understood him. You ready for it, boy? It's time to take your medicine. Thank you, sir. No one could control him. <laughs> Go inside, honey. But now, it's a new beginning. The beginning of the end for Freddy. Every town has an Elm Street. <laughs> oh, screaming while the bus is in motion. Did you mind or go for it? I'll get you, my pretty, and your little soul, too. Oh, yeah. We're gonna have to hit him with everything we've got. Now I'm playing with power. Twin Peaks here. Ah. It's gotta be me and him. You wanna live? What's with kids today, huh? Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Great graphics. They saved the best for last. Many years after the previous film, 
Freddy Krueger has returned and killed nearly every child and teenager in the town of Springwood, Ohio. The only surviving teenager, John Doe, is confronted by Freddy in a dream. John wakes up just outside the Springwood city limits, but due to a head injury, does not remember who he is or why he is there. At a shelter for troubled youth, three of the residents, Spencer, Carlos, and Tracy, plot to run away to California. The police find John and take him to the shelter, where he becomes a patient of Dr. Maggie Burroughs. Maggie notices a newspaper clipping from the Spring from Springwood in John's pocket. To attempt to cure John's amnesia, she plans a road trip to Springwood. And, in their attempt to run away, Tracy, Carlos, and Spencer stow away in the van. But they are discovered when John has a hallucination and almost wrecks the van just outside Springwood. Tracy, Spencer, and Carlos try to leave Springwood, but first rest at a nearby abandoned house. The house is 1428 Elm Street, Freddy Krueger's former home. John and Maggie visit the Springwood Orphanage and discover that Freddy had a child. John believes he is that child because Freddy allowed him to live. Back on Elm Street, Carlos and Spencer fall asleep and are killed by Freddy. Tracy is almost killed, but is awakened by Maggie. John, who went into a dream world with Tracy to try to help Spencer, is still asleep. Maggie and Tracy take John back to the shelter. On their way, Kruger attacks John in his dream. Before killing John, Kruger reveals that his child is a girl. As John dies, he tells this to Maggie. Tracy and Maggie return to the shelter, but they find that no one remembers John Spencer or Carlos, except for Doc, who has learned to control his dreams. Maggie finds her adoption papers and realizes that she is Freddy's daughter. Her birth name was Catherine Kruger. Her name was changed to Maggie Burroughs when, when her father was arrested and subsequently murdered. Doc discovers that Freddy's powers come from dream demons who continually revive him, and that Freddy can be killed if he is pulled into the real world. Maggie decides that she will be the one to enter Freddy's mind and pull him into the real world. Once in the dream world, she puts on a pair of 3D glasses and enters Freddy's mind. In his mind, she learns that Freddy was teased as a child, was abused by his foster father, inflicted self-abuse as a teenager, and murdered his wife. Freddy was given the power to become immortal by fiery demons. Maggie struggles to pull Freddy into the real world, but eventually succeeds. Maggie and Freddy end up in hand-to-hand -hand combat against one another. She uses several weapons confiscated from patients at the shelter. Enraged, enraged by the knowledge of what he has done, Maggie tears off Freddy's clawed glove and stabs him through the stomach with it. Embedding the gl the glove's claws into a still uh, support beam and leaving Freddy suspended above the ground, Tracy tosses Maggie a pipe bomb, which she throws into Freddy's chest. She says "Happy Father's Day," kisses him, and runs. The three dream demons fly out of Freddy after the pipe bomb kills him. Maggie smiles at Tracy and Doc. She is confident her father is dead. So that is our plot breakdown of 
uh, Freddie's dead. So what I want to talk about and what I want to focus on in this section is talking about Carlos. Now, this may be a shorter section because Carlos and his disability don't really fit into this film the way that the other characters that we've discussed has. But his death is really uh, kind of based on his disability. So I think there's some things that we can discuss. So Carlos is one of our youth at this shelter, a patient of Maggie's, and he is deaf. He has a hearing aid. It's not really something that is uh, hit on in any real way until we get to his death. And that's what I want to focus on. So when this group has arrived in Springwood and they've arrived to the Elm Street house. Now, I know this is synopsis that it's Freddie's house. It's actually Nancy Thompson's house. Although there is some uh, people who say that, you know, perhaps it was Freddie's house before. But that doesn't really fit, I think, with uh, kind of the lore that is uh, kind of put forth before this film. So just need to get that out. But they arrive at the Elm Street house or the facsimile of the Elm Street house. And uh, Carlos falls asleep and is greeted by his mom. Now, his mom slaps him and then kind of comes at him with his oversized a Q-tip and Carlos is really distraught and is screaming at his mom to stop, to stop. And of course, this is kind of indicating to us that this is how he became deaf. Is his mom uh, jammed something into his ear or physically hurt him in some way to make him lose his hearing. So um, his eardrum and hearing aid are taken and we now have Freddy. Uh, Carlos's mom has morphed into Freddy. And Freddy presents uh, kind of a new hearing aid that's kind of a parasitic thing that latches onto Carlos's ear and amplifies every sound. Um, but of course, before this, Freddy has uh, a little bit of fun of running around behind Carlos and you know, making some jokes that Carlos can't hear him around. So it's really uh, nuanced and thoughtfully executed. You've got Freddy. So Freddy makes a couple of his quips, you know, the Carlos, lend me your ear, uh, so on. But Freddy kills Carlos by again this parasitic hearing aid that's amplified the sound and he starts um you know like dropping a box of pins and the sound um really uh, gets to Carlos and then Freddy pulls out a chalkboard and with his claws uh, scrapes up against it and Carlos's head explodes. 
it's a really like I know I kind of made the joke. You know, it's really thoughtfully done and nuanced. That's not the vibe that this film is going for in any way, shape, or form. So it's I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. Um, it's really over the top, kind of cartoonish, very kind of Looney Tunes in feel and vibe. And um, but this uh, this particular death, I think, does have uh, some really uh, kind of hard hitting uh, pieces to it. Uh, you know, this is a film that's really really uh kind of focusing on elements of child abuse we really see this echoed in fairly i think i'm fairly certain all the characters um you know in all the previous entries of nightmare on elm street you have parents that aren't great but they always i think just fall short of being flat out abusive monsters um even in part four um when you have rick and alice's father who is an alcoholic is really kind of verbally uh combative with alice and rick you know there's it, it doesn't cross a certain line you know we don't see him be truly monstrous uh to his kids we see someone struggling with addiction just like nancy's mom in the first one it's just he's now kind of went a little bit further than she did um you know nancy's mom wanted to help was out of her league um and out of her depths to do so where allison rick's dad is is abusive but um this film even takes that further um because all these characters have pretty atrocious parents that's the name of the game here and so this is really pinpointed with carlos and we see you know again this sequence with the mom that morphs into freddie she's coming at him and so um you know she's the reason for his hearing loss with that um much like the other deaths that we've talked about here freddie makes a point of really emphasizing the weakness perceived with disability the fact that he kind of mocks carlos when carlos doesn't have his hearing aid you know kind of dancing behind him all of that it's kind of mocking it's um you know it's kind of the basic form of bullying and that's a huge fear that kids with disabilities have you know it's being bullied particularly being bullied with uh respects to their disability because it's not something that you can just come back the next day and uh, or the next year and just be different you know it's not something you can change it's who you are so there's definitely a cruelty there uh, just a kind of a cold cruelty that Freddie has towards Carlos with his death and it's pretty gruesome I mean 
the dude's head explodes. Uh, it's really gruesome, but it's really, really, uh, I think, smartly done. I think the effects look amazing. And there's, you know, just kind of in some ways, you know, we talked about Sheila's death in that moment where you have kind of this robot arm come out of the desk um, and clamp around Sheila's mouth. There's something similar to that with the uh, hearing aid that Freddie gives Carlos. Very grotesque in a way and yeah is part of the demise of these characters. So I did see some similarities there and you know unfortunately in kind of the same vein as Sheila we're not really given a ton of time with Carlos. We're not really uh, given scenes where we're able to see how he you know lives with his disability we see in his death scene we're able to kind of make this um kind of correlation of how he attributed his disability but nothing's really cemented um so it's a character again that's kind of interesting could had some different things going on but you know, really, I think the most <laughs> the most interesting characters in this film are uh, Doc and Maggie, the two adults, which is a kind of a change of pace for A Nightmare on Elm Street. The adults are kind of these caricatures of well-meaning but failing uh, individuals. And here you actually have some pretty competent um and resourceful individuals i mean obviously you have dr gordon and nancy in dream warriors as well and i would even say uh you know the other hospital uh personnel as well you know in dream warriors are also pretty capable but you know you also have a really strong group of kids here, the kids are kind of not all that dynamic, but there is something about Carlos and his backstory. I mean, all the kids have uh, some pretty uh, tragic backstories, with the exception of John Doe, because we don't really learn anything about him. But, uh, you know, they all just have these tragic backstories, but we don't really get a sense of how they're impacting them and how they've lived with these traumas in their life. And it's just kind of falls short in that way. But Carlo's death, I think, is really, really well done. And I think it's kind of a fan favorite within the franchise. Lots of people cite it as one of the best. And I have to agree. I think special effects pay off. I think tonally, it's not only well done, but it fits in a movie that I think has no clue really what it wants to be. I think it's trying to be a lot of different movies all at once, and thus it kind of gets, uh, you know, the consistency of tone and all of that kind of get lost. But it's a standout. It's by far, by far the best death in this film. 
yeah, that is Freddy's Dead and Carlos. And I think that is a good place for us to close up shop for this episode. We have done some heavy lifting with this episode, I would say. We went into one of the biggest and baddest franchises within Nightmare on Elm Street, and we tackled three films, we tackled three different characters, and we kind of dissected, you know, three different death scenes. So, I don't know about you, but I can use a nap. So, before I say goodbye, I do want to, of course, thank you for listening. I've gotten some really, really, really wonderful feedback from some of you saying that you've enjoyed these episodes and that it has, you know, encouraged you to go back and watch some of these films and, you know, some of these scenes, some of the characters that we've talked about have hit a little bit differently. And that really means a lot. I really appreciate it. And I certainly hope that this episode uh, continues that trend. But if you want to drop me a line or say hello, you can do that in a couple of different ways. You can shoot me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at Nicole, and that's Nicole with an H, N-I-C-H-O-L-E, in D.C. Also, don't forget, if you haven't already, Please subscribe to the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad wherever you listen to your podcast. It is a feed full of good, good stuff. Once you have subscribed, make sure that you rate and review. It helps other people find the feed, and there's going to be lots of new stuff coming, I think, on the feed before too long so you definitely want to be on the ground floor for that so that's all i've got for this episode thank you again for listening and until next time Scream Pod Squad.